Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This is episode 66. Thank you for joining us. This time we're going to talk about where are the vans? And two senses of that. Stick with me, I'll explain. Also, we're going to talk about how you can prepare for having no internet. What should you do when you know you're about to have no service at all? We'll also review the Apple MacBook Air with the M1 processor, and we'll visit a tree in a rock. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to episode 66. Very happy to have you here. Very happy to be here with you. This time, we're going to talk about some really interesting things. But before we get into that, I'd just like to promote a couple of things. First off is our YouTube channel is growing and it has new videos. I posted a video on how to cook a lobster roll in your van, or rather just outside your van. And also I posted a video explaining the shower concept that I picked up from watching a few things that other people did. Basically it's a shower in a bag that will work in any vehicle or in a tent. And it's this tiny little thing and all you need is water and you have a shower. So check out that YouTube video. There'll be a link in the show notes. And, uh, you know, like and subscribe. I hate promoting stuff like that, but I actually do need more subscribers to get up to that magic 1,000 subscriber number where I can actually do more things. So thank you for considering that. Also, our Discord channel is growing, and this is a place where you can come and chat with like-minded van life folks, and I will be in there all the time. So if you have a complicated question or just want to chat, Come on in and you can chat real time with somebody and I'll be in there and happy to answer any questions you might have. Also, I was contacted by the author of an article that was in The Insider about how they tried van life and hated it. This article got a lot of attention and uh, the author's name is Frank Otillo. Possibly Frank Otillo. I actually have to ask him how he pronounces his name. Anyway, we're going to have a recorded interview and talk about his van life experience and where he's going to go from here. I'm going to release that as a special episode. That is not going to be an episode number because I'm going to keep the format every time you see an episode number. That is the format that you are familiar with. So there will be two episodes next week, basically. One will be a special edition with Frank, and then there'll be episode 67. So, okay. Enough chatting, let's get to the meat of it. Where are the vans? So this question is actually two questions. One question is, where are the vans, all the cool vans that people in Europe and Asia can get that we can't? That's the first part. The other part is, is here in the US, where are all the vans? Like, they're all gone. It is so hard to find a van right now, and we're going to talk about that. But first, why can't we get all the cool vans that we see overseas? If you travel, if you go to even the Caribbean or Japan or anywhere, you're going to see a whole bunch of vans that maybe you've never seen before and you certainly haven't seen in the U.S. Why is that? There's clearly a big market for vans in the U.S. right now, and truthfully, there always has been. You would think that now that there's this huge demand on vans, we would get more and more vans coming in from overseas. Volkswagen makes a ton of different vans. None of them are for sale in the U.S. Toyota makes a full-size van. They actually make a super-size van. Not available in the U.S. Mitsubishi makes a bunch of vans. And the reason is, it's, it's stupid. The reason is this thing from the 60s called... The chicken tax. 
Most of the destruction of World War II happened in Europe and Asia, and after it was all said and done, the U.S. was here like, hi, all our factories still work, buy our stuff. And that included our farms, too. So after World War II, all these people came back and started creating chicken farms. And the U.S. produced an incredible number of chickens and started sending them to Europe, who had some food insecurity because of the war. And gradually, chicken, which had become a delicacy because of its scarcity, started to make up more and more of the European diet. And American chicken started to make up a huge percentage of the chicken that was being eaten over there. And some of the local farmers were like, well, that's not fair. So in Holland, the Netherlands, they banned the import of U.S. chickens. And then in other countries, they started to say, well, all right, you can bring your chickens over, but we're going to have to put a little tax on there, a tariff. Well, in the 1960s, during the Cold War, where we had the Cuban Missile Crisis and all these other very fun, exciting world events, Johnson, President Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, decided that he was going to fight back against this unfair tax on U.S. chickens and created tariffs for the U.S. for imported goods from Europe. And that included things like brandy and dextrin and light trucks were specifically mentioned. Now, light trucks would include pickup trucks and vans, the things we care about. Well, over time, these things changed and laws were passed. And dextrin, which is a food starch, and brandy, were, we, we sorted that out. That was fine. But light trucks were another issue. Back then, Detroit, the big three, had an awful lot of power in the U.S. government, and they were like, you know what, let's, let's leave that part there. Yeah, let's, let's go ahead and leave that. And then in the 70s, they reinforced it because the Asian and German pickup trucks that were coming out were much more fuel efficient, and it would have cost a lot of money for General Motors to compete with that. So they competed with it by promoting the chicken tax, thus those vehicles were kept out of the U.S., and the vans suddenly started all being American-made vans. Now, Volkswagen was a holdout. We had Volkswagen vans for a while, but finally they gave up too. And as of the 80s, there was just basically the big three. You could get a, you, oh, you want a van? All right, you can get a Dodge, a Ford, or a Chevy, basically. And it's all because of this silly chicken tax, and it's still with us today. But there's a lot of weird little tidbits about this. The vans that we have in the U.S. typically aren't made in the U.S., they're made overseas or in Mexico and Canada. Now, because of NAFTA, the vans that are made in Mexico and Canada do not have this tariff. But the European vans still do, including the European vans made for Ford. Ford Transit Connects, the little Ford vans, were made in Turkey and therefore would have been subject to the tariff. So Ford got creative and sent over passenger van versions of the Transit Connect. I'm talking about the old, like, 2012 Transit Connects. They were shipped to the U.S. with windows and seats. But when they got here in a warehouse in Baltimore, the seats and windows were removed and destroyed, and the windows were replaced with metal panels, and the vans were sold as cargo vans. And even though that cost Ford a lot of money to do that, it was significantly less than the tariff. Everybody's beloved sprinters, those came to the U.S. the same way. They were shipped over as partial vehicles. So a sprinter that was shipped over in, say, 2005 would have come basically disassembled, and then it was rebuilt in a factory in South Carolina, thus making it a vehicle assembled in the U.S., even though it was basically them bolting on the transmission and saying, hey, we're done. 
you may remember Mazda trucks that used to be available in the 80s, and several other makers did this. They would send over the truck without a bed. It would just be the cab and then nothing else, and they would add a bed in the U.S., and that would count as assembly. So this law really serves no purpose anymore. It's nearly 60 years old, and I think we could just get rid of it. And I say that mostly because I want more van choices. <laughs> I, I will admit my bias, but honestly, nobody thinks this law makes much sense anymore, except the U.S. automakers, and even they have to find ways to get around it. It's all very odd. So if you see vans overseas that look really cool and you want them here in the U.S., you can't have them except in one specific case. There is a statute of limitations on this tariff that if a vehicle is over 25 years old, you can import it and not pay the tariff. Nate from Element Van Life just did this. He got a 25-year-old full-size Toyota four-wheel drive diesel van, which for those of us in the U.S. are like, he got a what? Well, yeah, Japan, they've had these things all along, and he imported one. The only problem, other than the fact that it's a 25-year-old vehicle, is that the steering wheel is kind of where the glove box normally is in the U.S., and he says it's not a big deal. You can catch him on YouTube and, and see his adventures as he builds it out. So that pretty much answers that, the chicken tax. Now, the thing we can do something about, where the heck are all the vans that we want to buy in the U.S.? Because of the pandemic, home delivery became an enormous thing. It always was, and it was always growing, but it grew very fast. And outfits like Amazon, who were starting their own delivery services, went out and bought every van they could. So that put a lot of pressure on new vans. If you go to buy, say, a new Promaster right now, you're not going to be able to haggle very much, and you will probably have to wait several months. And it's because there's more demand than vans. That has pushed it down to used vans. And vans that are a couple years old with under 20,000 miles, their prices are about the same as new, if you can find them. Of course, that pressure rolls down to older vans, etc. So it's a really hard time to find a van right now. But hey, if you're not willing to wait and you're willing to dive in and find a van, you still can. Here are some sources for you. The big three internet car dealerships, Carvana, CarMax, and Vroom, don't really sell cargo vans. They sometimes will have them, but it's not really their thing. But if you were looking for a van with windows, you might find them there, and you can set up searches and they will notify you. I've been watching for a while, and they tend to go very quickly, so this would be something you'd have to monitor. The good thing about these services is that they offer you the ability to take the vehicle back if you don't like it. So you get basically a week to try it out. That's plenty of time to find major problems with the van. Now, you do pay a bit more with these companies, and I, I've dealt with Carvana and CarMax, and I've had good experiences with both. I haven't actually dealt with Vroom. But if you want to be the safest possible, that's a good way to go. However, your selection is going to be limited if you want a cargo van. Another way to go is Cars.com. Now, Cars.com is not comparable to Carvana, CarMax, and Vroom. Cars.com is a collection of independent and, and some not independent car dealerships. Basically, they all will send their car listings to Cars.com and then they're listed for you to see. What's nice about cars.com is that you can compare across different dealerships and often Carfax will be included. So you know a lot more about the car before you actually contact the dealer and buy it from them. It's a little less safe, but I bought my van through cars.com. They found me a local dealer that had the van I wanted and it was fine. Don't have that take it back guarantee though. So don't compare that with Carvana, CarMax, and Vroom. And the next level, and 
as I'm talking about these, the price is going down. <laughs> Just to be clear, what's happening here is the price is going down and your risk is going up. The next place, and a lot of people will look only here, is Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist. These two sources are usually person-to-person -person sales, and that's a good way to get a good price. But you do have to know a lot about the vehicle. You have to be somebody who can look at a vehicle and say, yeah, this is good or not. You have to have a good idea of what the price should be. Uh, then you have to deal with the hassle of tagging titles all on your own because the private party is not going to do that for you. And it's a place where you're, you're more likely to find scams. All the other sources I mentioned, scams are going to be pretty rare because they have somebody watching them. Some guy on Facebook, not so much. So you have to be careful there. You absolutely can find a decent van on Craigslist or Facebook, but you do have to do your due diligence. And then finally, I will mention auctions. You can buy a van from auctions. Uh, Gov Auctions is a site. I'll have links in the show notes to all these. You don't have to remember them. But there's a, Gov Auctions is a great site that people will say, hey, buy this van. But in most cases, it's, it's a van somewhere far from you that you won't be able to see until after you buy it you have maximum risk here. They take a lot of pictures and they will tell you the truth. But in many cases, the truth is that we didn't try to start it. We don't know if it runs. Make your bid. This is for people looking for an extreme bargain who are willing to take a risk. And it's also for very unusual vehicles. Like if you wanted a van with a cherry picker, which, hey, go for it if that's what you're into, this would be a place to find those. Also, as a side note, I'm old, right? So we used to have these things called want ads, which is this weekly publication where people would put ads for vehicles. That exists online now in, in the form of these trader websites. They're all associated with each other. One is RV Trader and the other is Commercial Truck Trader. They have lots of trucks and RVs that you can look at. And they're great for judging price because they have so many listed. However, they're a bit like cars.com, except that there's no vetting. These are just listings that people put up there, so you have to do all your due diligence. At any rate, there are vans out there. It's just a bit harder to find them. And again, I will say that the van you get is the best van possible. Don't fall in love until after you get it. Do fall in love when you get it. And if you're having trouble finding what you're looking for, consider looking for something maybe a little different. Tech Talk. Hey, plan not to have internet. Okay, let's talk about that. You're heading out on the road. You really want to have internet. Most of us are living by the internet. You're listening to me over the internet. But because we are leaving city areas, internet doesn't exist. And we can try all the Wii boosts and stuff we want. But there are going to be times where we have no internet. Even in places that you might think we should. I barely had internet in Indiana Dunes last week. And I could see Chicago. I always plan as if I'm not going to have internet. And here are the things I do to prepare. First off, I download all the maps within hundreds of miles of my location. One example is Google Maps, where you can just tell it in your phone to download the map. Just download the map, and then you can navigate with that without internet at all. Hugely important. Absolutely do that. And if I'm in a more remote area, I might use Avenza Maps or something like that to download a topographical map where I can look and see, like, hey, there's a mountain between me and where I want to go. That's the most important thing. The next thing is entertainment. 
I like to listen to podcasts. I like to watch TV series on Netflix and all that and YouTube and such. What I'll typically do is pick a series and I'll download the next five episodes of that series. Netflix, Amazon Prime, etc., most of them allow you to do this. You still need a subscription, and in some cases you have to sign in before you can start watching them, so you have to be careful about that. But I found that with Netflix, basically, once you download those videos, you have two weeks to watch them, to sign on again for them. So you get, a, you get a good two weeks. And hey, you know, download a whole season of Star Trek or something and watch that. Of course, you can download as many podcasts as you want. I mean, podcasts don't take up very much space. You could download, say, 400 episodes of 99% Invisible, and that would give you enough content for a very, very long time. Weather is an important factor, and that's why I recommend everyone have a weather radio that does not need the internet, and pretty much you can get weather radio almost anywhere. I've talked about them in the past. They're fairly inexpensive definitely look into getting one of those. The tricky thing then is communication. How are you going to communicate? If you are going to be off the grid for a bit and you know it and you have people you need to check in with, have a plan with them saying, I will check in with you by Monday and then leave your site to go somewhere where you have service and check in with them. Or if you're going to be out for an extended period of time or somewhere really rural, consider getting one of those GPS satellite texting services like Garmin Reach. They're expensive, but communication's important. If you get in trouble, if you fall outside your van and break your leg and can't drive or move anymore, you do want to have a way to call 911, and that's what these things can do. I'll have links to a bunch of this stuff in the show notes, but one thing I also want you to remember is it's okay to not have internet and kind of pay attention to the world a little bit too. I spent some time in Indiana last week just sitting and watching the birds and watching the leaves blow in the wind. And it was wonderful and at least as entertaining as watching something on Netflix. So don't forget that part of things too. That's a big reason why many of us are out there. Tales from the road. So I tell people that one of the things that I have done in my life is that I jumped out of a perfectly good hot air balloon and fell 300 feet. And it's absolutely true. I've just left out one little detail of that story, which is that I was attached to the balloon by a bungee cord. Way back in the early 90s, a bunch of us that worked the night shift at Little America Hotel in Towers in Salt Lake City decided to head out and jump out of hot air balloons. Somebody was offering a service where they would take the hot air balloon up 300 feet and you would jump out. And I thought, sure, I'll do this. It's it's probably going to feel like you're flying, right? It sounds like fun. So as I got there, I noticed somebody actually jumping out of a hot air balloon and they panicked and grabbed the bungee cord, which whacked them in the face. And by the time I pulled up, they were on the ground sobbing with blood pouring out of their face. And I thought, okay, this is a little different than maybe I expected. Uh, You're not supposed to grab the bungee cord. They tell you that. You're supposed to fall. Don't grab anything. I can do that. So it's my turn to get up there, and they're videotaping this on VHS. That's how long ago this was. And I climb in the hot air balloon, and the guy who's piloting, who's actually called the professor, says, what are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, no, you you ride on the outside. So there's a little tiny platform on the outside of the hot air balloon, and he asked me to stand on that and hold on, and I do. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. But as we're going up, I realize that we're going up 300 feet. The bungee cord stretches about 250 feet. But that means that 
between zero feet and 300 feet, if I fall off that platform, I'm going to hit the ground. I wasn't strapped in in any way. I was literally holding on to the side of a hot air balloon, and if I had fallen, I would have died. And somehow this was okay and normal. Obviously, I made it all the way up there. They're very fast. They want you to do this quickly. There's no enjoying the view stuff. I really wanted to enjoy the view. It was beautiful up there. But the guy was like, go, go, go. Count of three, go, three, go, go. And so I jumped. And it felt like jumping to my death. Basically, I was convinced at that point that if I jumped off that hot air balloon, I was going to die. And then I did it, which is a little unsettling. It didn't feel like flying. It felt like falling. And not once, but three times, because as I fell all the way down, I stretched the bungee cord, which threw me back up in the air, and then I fell back down again, and then up back in the end. Yeah, then it was over, and I was laying there limp on the bungee cord, and the hot air balloon came down, and I got on the ground. And I was like, whew, wow. And then some folks came over and said, wow, you did that perfectly. Your dive was perfect. It was a great arc. And I was like, oh, great, okay. I can't wait to see the video. And they handed me my VHS tape. And I drove home and popped it in the machine. And there was nothing on it except static. Product review. I know people have Macs and PCs and like one or the other, or even Chromebooks. Chromebooks are a good solution too, but I tend to use Macs most often. I have them all. I'm kind of pathetic like that, but I do use Macs most often, and my MacBook Pro is getting pretty old. So I went out and bought an Apple MacBook Air with the new M1 chip. Now, if you haven't been paying attention to Apple, and there's no reason why you should, Apple has changed their basic core architecture in their computers. This is a major shift, and these new computers are pretty fancy. I bought an 8GB MacBook Air with 512GB of SSD and only 8GB of RAM, which scared me because all of my Macs that I've had for years have had 16GB. But it was only $1,200, and I thought maybe it would be a short-term machine, whatever. Anyway, turns out I love this thing. These new MacBook Airs are great for van life in a few ways that you may not have thought of. First off, they're tiny. They're little tiny things. You can hide them anywhere in the van. Second, they have incredible battery life, up to 20 hours. That is awesome. And my favorite part, you can charge them with anything. They don't have much in the way of ports. They have two USB-C ports and a headphone jack. That USB-C port, either one of them actually, you can charge out of your cigarette lighter, off of a battery pack, any, I mean, whatever you have, it'll take it. You can use low amperage and have it take a long time. You, anyway, you do not need to use an inverter to charge this thing, and that is a huge advantage for van life. Also, the performance is great. It's the fastest computer I've ever had. You can do video editing on it. You can certainly do a podcast on it. Last week's podcast was done on my M1 Mac. And I think you definitely should take a look. They fixed the keyboard problems. The keyboard is better. They've gotten rid of the touch bar. You can still get the touch bar if you want to get the MacBook Pro, but there really isn't enough difference between the MacBook Pro and the MacBook Air to justify the cost of the MacBook Pro. So I don't want to be an Apple evangelist here or anything like that, but this is a computer that is great for van life. It checks off all the boxes, and I think it's worth a look. 
I'll have a link in the show notes to the exact model that I have. There aren't that many variations, to be honest. If you're worried about like, okay, you've only got these two ports, how do you plug everything in? They sell a vast array of dongles, basically, that you plug in and then they'll take SSD cards and normal size USB and all that. It's annoying to have to plug that in whenever you want to use that. But it's also nice to just have this little tiny thing that you don't have anything hanging off of for most of the time you use it. So it's a trade-off that I'm still getting used to. But don't worry, if you have an old device, you can still use it with the new Mac. A place to visit. If you're driving on I-80 through Wyoming, which, this has come up a lot this week for some reason, but you should probably not consider that seeing Wyoming. I mean, you'll see some of Wyoming, but it's not the most interesting part. You're going to miss the most interesting parts, with one exception. If you take out a map or go to Google Maps and go to Buford, Wyoming, Buford, unincorporated ghost town in Albany County, you will be near a very interesting little thing that you can see without even leaving I-80, and it's called Tree in the Rock tree in the rock historical park it's actually between the eastbound and westbound parts of i-80 on an island in the middle of the road and you can pull over there's a parking lot there and it's a tree it's growing out of a rock and and while that may not be the most wild thing in the world what is wild about this is that this tree has been part of western history for well over a century Everybody who has come through this region over the years has noticed this tree and, well, some of the men have even stopped to water this tree. It is historically documented that that was a common occurrence. Now, this tree stands out for a couple of reasons. One is that it's growing between, it's growing out of a rock. There's this rock and there's a tree growing out of it. Another is that this is an area where there aren't very many trees. And many people, many, many pioneers and folks who went west would mention this in their notes. But then there was a time when the railroad came through in 1867, and it was going to go right where this tree was. Now, you might be thinking, well, Wyoming's a big place. Why is everyone focused here? It's because there are mountains, hills on both sides. So if you are going east to west through Wyoming, it's natural for you to go through this area. And the tree is right in the middle of it. So when the railroad came through, well, that tree's got to go. And they were like, no, you know, that poor little tree, let's save it. So they actually moved the railroad to save this little tree. And then, of course, as the railroad went through, the interstates went through. And they were like, well, that tree is right in the middle of the road. We're going to have, and again, they split I-80 around the tree. (laughs) And that's why you can visit it today. It's this kind of cool little thing, that a piece of Western history and an example where modern industry has stepped aside for one single organism. Now, there's no museum there or anything like that. There's basically a parking lot, a sign, and the tree, which is a limber pine, some of which have grown to be 2,000 years old old. So maybe in the future when we're all traveling in flying cars and hovercrafts and monorails or whatever, we'll once again have to divert around this tree. And I really hope we do because it deserves it. Resource recommendation. Hey, if you like audiobooks, but you're really not excited about Audible's subscription model, which I understand, there are audiobooks available to you from the library in two different ways. First is, depending on where you call home, if you get a library card there, you will probably get a subscription to an audiobook service. Now, they 
treat audiobooks as though they are hard copy books. They have to be checked in and checked out. But if you have a library card, you are able to do this. And you can hold books and put in reservations for them. And if there's a book you absolutely want and it's taken out, they'll send you an email when it's available. You click the link and you can listen to the audiobook. So there's thousands and thousands and thousands of books you can listen to that way. Also, and I have done this, even if you don't have a library card, you can go into a library, into their audiobook section, and listen, quote unquote, listen to the audiobooks with a portable CD drive that's attached to your computer. And then you find out that you have a recording of the audiobook that you can listen to later. This is technically not legal and questionably ethical. So, there's yet another service, and that is that there's tons of free audiobooks online. There's a lot of audiobooks that you can just search for, including some at the Library of Congress, that you can just download. I basically am suggesting that you take advantage of your local library and Google free audiobooks, and you will find tons of them. And it's great, especially if you like the classics. A bit of Q&A, and this is a little different because I'm kind of asking the question and looking for some crowdsourced help here. Because I've been cooking things in my van and putting videos up on YouTube, and some odd things like soup dumplings and lobster rolls from a live lobster, somebody said, What's next, Beef Wellington? And, well, okay, I'll try to cook Beef Wellington in the van. I've never cooked it before. I'm not even sure I've actually had it before. But I understand it's complicated and... I know it needs an oven. I don't have an oven. I don't have a way to have an oven, really. So I'm asking for your suggestions as to what you think I could use for an oven to make beef wellington, which from my understanding needs to be baked for 45 minutes. That's a long time. I bought one of those old Coleman camping ovens. These are about the size of a milk crate and they're made of aluminum that folds and you pop it up and you basically set it on top of your stove, your burner, and that makes the heat, that makes the oven. It has a little gauge on the front and that's it. So I think I'm gonna go with that. I think those donut-shaped Omnia stovetop ovens are interesting, but they're very expensive and I don't think I wanna do that just to make one dish. I wouldn't have space to store that in my van full-time. And I'm also trying to avoid using like a Dutch oven on a campfire. I feel like that's a different endeavor. I want to like associate this cooking directly with the van. So if you have ideas, let me know. But if you don't, I'm going to give it a shot with the Coleman oven. I will make a video of it, whether it works or not. And I'll have a peanut butter jelly sandwich on hand just in case. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 66. I absolutely do appreciate it. Please check out the YouTube channel. If there's anything on there that you would like to see or don't like, or you have any comments at all, I love to hear feedback. Positive and negative feedback are both valuable, so please let me know. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember the words of Martin Luther King. If you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl, but by all means, keep moving.